Glad to be back. Um, I assume everyone here was here yesterday. And today's discussion uh, actually complements yesterday's talk uh, very nicely. Uh, yesterday, if you remember, I talked about legislation and artificial lawmaking by the state. Today, I'll focus on intellectual property. As many of you may be aware, I've spoken on this topic uh, literally hundreds of times. Um, so I don't really need notes <laughs> anymore, but I'll use them anyway because I have some, some illustrations. Uh, okay. So what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to briefly discuss the libertarian case against intellectual property, but that's not going to be the whole of my topic. What I would like to focus on is IP or intellectual imperialism, which is basically how the United States primarily uh, – tries to bully other countries into adopting its laws, which are mainly for the benefit of certain industries in the U.S., uh, to the detriment of other people in the U.S. and other company, countries around the world. Okay, so just a review. This is what we talked about yesterday. Uh, yesterday, I focused mostly on the scarce resources aspect of human action. When I talked about the purpose of law being to come up with rules that de determine property rights and ownership to permit the conflict-free use of scarce resources. But as I mentioned yesterday, the general structure of human action is that humans act, we pursue ends, and we use knowledge, and we have to use scarce means to do this. Okay. This is Mises' praxeology. So we have to use our knowledge to select among ends and to decide which means can help us achieve those ends. And then we have to act to do that. Okay? Property rights and laws are meant to protect the scarce resources component of action, but not knowledge. Okay? So a key thing to keep in mind is that scarce resources are limited, but knowledge is not limited. Knowledge can be accumulate from generation to generation. This is, in fact, why we are richer now than humans in the past, because every generation, we don't really have more things. The world is a finite resource, and we keep reusing the same resources, but every generation, our knowledge grows, grows and grows and grows. And so every generation is richer because that aspect of human action uh, keeps increasing and getting better. Our technical knowledge, our knowledge of how to do things, and the fact that we have more human beings, and so when you have 7 billion people, it's better than 500 million because there's more, uh, there's more ability to have the division of, uh, of, of, of resources. Now, Hayek, for example, in the Constitution of Liberty, acknowledged this. This is a, a point that uh, Austrian economists and other economists have recognized the importance of knowledge. So Hayek pointed out, for example, uh, in, the, in the middle paragraph there, knowledge once achieved becomes gratuitously, uh, gratuitously available for the benefit of everyone, of all. It's through this free gift of knowledge acquired by the experiments of some members of society that general progress is made possible. Okay, so every generation is richer and better off because 
we have what Hayek called a fund of experience to draw on that gets bigger and better over time. So progress comes about because of knowledge. Mises recognizes too, of course. He said action is purpose of conduct. It's not simply behavior, but it's a behavior begot by judgments of value aimed at a definite end and guided by ideas. Okay? So this is why knowledge is so important to human action as well as uh, scarce resources. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon, I have him pictured on the uh, upper right here. Uh, Francis Bacon has a famous expression, scientia potentia est, or Latin for knowledge is power. Uh, and the, the lower figure is a little bit ominous. It's one of the United States uh, Defense Department's uh, agencies, which has that as their logo, uh, knowledge is power. And you see the, uh, the ominous pyramid controlling the entire earth with its power and knowledge. Um, so I would also say knowledge is freedom, right? This is what it means to be free, to be able to use, have freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of press, and conscious, and freedom of conscience, okay? This is why in our current generation, our current age, the internet and technology is so important for freedom. The internet is the biggest threat to the state, I believe, because it lets us communicate, learn, and this is why any threat by the state to freedom of the internet and freedom of technology is very ominous and a bad sign uh, for liberty. Okay, just to review what we talked about yesterday, th the purpose of law and justice and property rights is to prevent conflict over the use of scarce resources, which is one of the two components of human action. And the whole purpose of this is to fight scarcity. Scarcity is the way the world is, but we fight it. We try to make abundance in the face of this world of scarcity, and we've done a pretty good job of it despite state interference. That's what free markets do. Free markets create uh, abundance where there's not naturally abundance. Right? We all have smartphones now. Uh, there were no smartphones 15 years ago. Okay? But the other crucial ingredient of, of human, successful human action is knowledge. Okay? This is the knowledge we need to guide our use of these resources. Okay? Now, this is why intellectual property laws are not justified and are contrary to liberty. We need property rights in the scarce resources, but you cannot have property rights in knowledge, and we should not try to limit knowledge. Okay? Knowledge is already easily shareable. Any number of people can use the same recipe or the same ideas at the same time. There is no possibility of conflict over this, so there's no conflict to solve. Okay? So when we try to assign property rights by law to ideas, what we do is we inflate laws, just like inflating the money supply makes money worth less. Right? Money supply inflation gives rise to price inflation, makes money less valuable. When the government grants positive rights, through positive laws like welfare, it undermines negative rights to liberty because it has to come at the expense of something. And the same is true with intellectual property. Uh, some of you may be uh, familiar with Rothbard, uh, his in, in Power and Market, he has a taxonomy of state intervention and he groups the way the state intervenes in human life and society and the economy into three different types, autistic, binary, and triangular. 
Uh, autistic is, uh, an example would be uh, the drug law or, or like say a private crime like murder when you basically just directly control someone and you take over their life and you harm them. Uh, binary is when the state forces an exchange. So an example would be taxation or even slavery. So the state extracts money from a victim. And triangular is when the state forces an exchange between two citizens. So for example, minimum wages, which prevents an employer from paying someone less than a certain price for a, for a job, or price controls. And intellectual property it would be triangular because the, the state is basically telling one person they, that he can control how another person uses his property. Uh, in the law, there's a, in, in the civil law, Brazil is a civil law country, there's something called an, a servitude, which is a right to use property less than full ownership. A negative servitude is not the right to use, but the right to stop the use. So for example, if two homeowners, uh, yeah, if two homeowners next to each other enter into what's called a restrictive covenant, it's basically a negative servitude arrangement where each homeowner has a contractual right to prevent the other homeowner from doing certain things with their property. Some private associations have this. This is perfectly legitimate because it's a contractual thing that people enter into. So for example, if I move into a neighborhood with houses and I don't want it to be used to, for, a pig back, for a pig farm or something, or something commercial, then we all agree to use the, our houses only for residential purposes. So that means I can block or prevent my neighbor from using his house for certain purposes because he has granted me a negative servitude. Okay? Intellectual property is basically a negative servitude. It's not called that. It's called a property right by the proponents as a, as a PR move just to defend it. But it's not really a property right. It's really a negative servitude. But it's not voluntarily contractually agreed to by the parties. Rather, the state enforces this and grants it to someone who asks for it, even though the burdened estate didn't agree to it. Okay, that's why it's a triangular type of inter intervention. Okay. Now, so there are many people who advocate intellectual property, and they do so under the pretense that innovation is good, ideas are good. And therefore, if you're for innovation and you're for ideas, you must believe in property rights and ideas. And if you're opposed to it, as I am, you must be opposed to ideas. This is, of course, total nonsense. Intellectual property is literally death. It causes literal deaths. Uh, copyright is enforced by criminal laws in most countries, so you can literally go to jail for infringing copyright. And patents actually cause deaths because of restricted, uh, restricted supply of certain pharmaceuticals, uh, innovations that are safety-related innovations like seatbelt mechanisms, airbag mechanisms in cars. If one manufacturer has a patent, another cannot adopt these mechanisms even though they're life-saving. Okay. Just to briefly go over the history of these things, patent law prevents competition. That's what its purpose is. It, 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 it's designed to give someone who comes up with uh, a new technical uh, machine or process uh, about a 17-year monopoly period where only they can practice it. Uh, it's based in its form upon the Statute of Monopolies in England in 1623. Uh, you can see there was truth in labeling in the older days. Uh, I think in the United States, we used to have the Department of War. Now it's called the Department of Defense. We, we, we're really big on euphemisms nowadays. Um, 
uh, patents did originate in the statute of monopolies, so at least the government recognized that what they were granting was monopolies. Today's modern-day defenders of patents don't want to call them monopolies, and they actually get offended if you call them what they are, which is monopolies. Copyright arose with the church and the state censoring free speech and freedom of the press through monopolies and guilds, and uh, one of the most modern forms of copyright was the statute of Anne in 1709. Now, um, I have at the bottom of this slide a, a quote. This is just a mainstream law professor, Jerome Reichman, and he, he says, Government adopts IP law in the belief that a privileged monopolistic domain in a free market economy promotes technological progress better than a regime of unbridled competition. So you see there's an admission here that that's what these people are against. They're against competition. Remember, we libertarians think competition is a good thing. We're in favor of competition. So anything that restricts competition is not good. It's not a property right. This, this is shockingly uh, what you'll hear among a lot of the older generation of libertarians who also believed in intellectual property rights, people like Ayn Rand and, and others, because it's called a property right, but it's of course not really a property right. This is William Sugar, who's a, a alleged free market economist, writing for the Independent Institute, an American um, libertarian think tank. So he said, granting a temporary monopoly, by which he means patent, or copyright is necessary to give inventors incentives. And then he says, to paraphrase the economist Joan Robinson, patents and copyrights slow down the diffusion of new ideas for a reason, to promote their creation. That's their argument. But he's admitting that patent and copyright slows down the spread of ideas. Now, I would say this as a criticism. This is a free market economist saying this to defend it. It's amazing. Okay. Now, let's talk about modern, modern intellectual property law. Uh, I would say the genesis would be the United States Constitution, 1789, which authorizes Congress to enact copyright and patent law based upon the practice in England, which the United States uh, traces origins to. Okay. In, in the 1800s, these were just called monopolies and patent and copyright at the time. They were not called intellectual property. They were just called monopolies granted by the state for a utilitarian purpose, to so-called to encourage innovation and the arts. In the 1800s, free market economists started opposing this because it was getting to be a problem and seriously hamper competition and, and even innovation. And so they started attacking these, the practice of states granting patents and copyrights. So the defenders, by, by then there had been built up these special interest groups that were dependent upon copyright and patent. Uh, and they started fighting back and defending the system because they wanted to keep their monopolies. So they started calling it intellectual property because most people are in favor of property rights. So they just called it, no, it's just a different type of property. It's not regular property and tangible things. It's intellectual property. And after all, the brain is important. The mind is important. Okay. So, of course, this has led to a proliferation of statutes uh, related to uh, intellectual property. Uh, I'm just going to – now, I'm, I'm, I have a lot listed here on these slides. I will be podcasting this later, and on my website I will have my slides, and there are links in here if anyone's interested in following up on this 
later, you, you can do so. Uh, so I'm not going to give a law class here and go into the details of different statutes and treaties, but I want you to see the um, incredible outpouring of legislation and treaties, mostly at the urging of the United States, and how this is, the United States has used its influence and power and dominance over the world economy to push its IP laws on other countries. So just a brief review, 1624, first modern origin of patents, the statute of monopolies in England, 1710, the statute of Anne in England, which was sort of the basis of modern copyright laws. Uh, and 1691 was the first modern-ish patent law in South Carolina. Actually, this is before the United States Constitution. And then, of course, the U.S. Constitution, 1789, and the next year or two, patent and copyright acts started coming out. Okay, so the key IP statutes, I'm just focusing on the U.S. for now because this is a, a template or a model for what much of the world has done. Uh, so the patent law, patent law covers inventions. Okay, copyright law covers artistic creative works. The other types of intellectual property are trademark and trade secret, and then there are other special ones like semiconductor mask works, which was done for the behest of Intel and companies like this. Uh, defamation law, which is also a type of law in most countries, libel and slander, uh, is not usually regarded as a type of intellectual property law, but I believe it should be because it's based upon the same reasoning and is similarly invalid. And then there are others too. I'm only going to focus mostly on patent and copyright here today. These are the two most evil and most harmful. Uh, my view is that patent law probably costs a, a, the world economy maybe a trillion dollars a year in terms of lost innovation and lost wealth. Copyright is not as harmful financially, but it's more harmful in the sense that it's used by the state to restrict freedom of the press and freedom of speech. Uh, in terms of writing books, publishing things, and especially the internet. So in a way, I think copyright, although it does less damage financially, is, is even more insidious. Plus it lasts way longer, maybe over 100 years in most cases. Patents only last about 17 years. So, uh, so in the US, patents are grounded in the Constitution. Then there was the Patent Act of 1790, just one year later. And then the Patent Act of 50, 1952, and now there's more modern legislation. Uh, it's administered in America by the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO. Uh, copyright is also based upon older law as well. Trademark law is usually state law in America because it's not grant the authority to do it is not granted in the Constitution. So it's done at a federal level only when there's interstate commerce. Uh, and then trade secret is a state law mostly. Okay. There have been modern additions, a proliferation of legislation that which have expanded the scope and the types of intellectual property. In copyright, there's the No Electronic Theft Act of 1997. Uh, some of you might remember the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the singer Sonny and Cher in America. Cher is the singer. Sonny Bono was her husband, and he became a Republican congressman. He died running into a tree snow skiing. And uh, so they named this, this act after him, which extended the copyright term. Basically what happens is Disney has a lot of power in the, uh, in, in the Congress. And every time Mickey Mouse, his, his copyright is about to expire, they go to Congress and they lobby Congress to extend the copyright term a little bit longer. So that's why the copyright term is now the life of the author plus 70 years, 70 years after death. So it's well over 100 years in some cases. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which, uh, which uh, 
which is the reason you see YouTube takedowns all the time. You'll see a video that's now removed because if someone puts YouTube on notice that they claim that the copyright they have is being infringed by a video, YouTube just takes it down to avoid liability because of the DMCA. Okay. Uh, and then there have been modern legislative additions to trademark and also to trade secret, which uh, the details are boring. Now, let's turn to internet, the international scene, which is where America ex uh, exercises its influence to spread its IP laws to the rest of the world. The two major international bodies which have to do with intellectual property are the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which, is, which was meant to spread free trade, but of course it's got lots of intellectual property provisions stuck in there. And if you think about it, IP rights are like a local property rights issue. It has nothing to do with trade. It, should, it has no place in a free trade agreement, but yet the United States insisted on this being there. And then there's WIPO, which is a UN organization, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Okay. Those are the two main bodies. Now, the main treaties which affect these bodies and which affect most countries in the world would be the Paris Convention of 1883, which, uh, which uh, had to do with international patent rights, and the Patent Cooperation Treaty, which is another international treaty uh, affecting patent rights among countries in the world. Uh, there's a regional, the, the European Patent Convention uh, is a big one. I actually am not sure what's going to happen with the UK. Uh, my, for my clients, we file a, a, a European patent quite often. Uh, because it's simpler, so I think we may be, you know, it may give me more work, so I guess I'm happy about Brexit. Uh, uh, the Berne Convention is one of the worst. This is the Copyright Convention from 1886 um, and the WIPO Copyright Treaty, okay? So these basically require states that are members to these treaties to have minimum standards of intellectual property. You have to have so many laws. For example, in the Berne Convention, every country is required to have at least life of the author plus 50 years of protection. The United States is 20 years longer than that now, and as we'll get to in a minute, the United States tries to push other countries to also add 20 years to their terms, and in some cases they're succeeding. Okay. Uh, there's a Madrid, the Madrid Treaty is the, trade, the International Trademark Agreement, and then there's GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, uh, which in its 1994 Uruguay round covers intellectual property. Okay, and then there's TRIPS, the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property. This is administered by the WTO, one of the two bodies we mentioned earlier. So you can see there is a, a huge web of agreements. Now, one thing the United States does, and some other Western countries too, but primarily the U.S., we negotiate one-on-one -on -one agreements, free trade agreements with other countries. These are called BITS, Bilateral Investment Treaties. Um, in the old days, these were called FCNs, Freedom, Commerce, and Navigation Treaties. You know, two countries agree to get along and trade with each other. Good idea, very simple. A BIT is usually a good idea, too. But, of course, the United States inserts into its model BIT these intellectual property provisions. And uh, there are over 2,500 bits in place in the world today among different countries. Um, you, the U.S. has 50, uh, 40, 48 or 49 in place right now, mostly with developing countries. So we're basically doing deals with developing countries and forcing these countries 
to ad adopt US-style copyright and patent laws so that Merck Pharmaceutical and Disney and Hollywood and the music industry and the software industry in the US can sell goods in these countries at higher prices and at the, at the, to, the advantage, to the disadvantage of the fairly poor average citizen or consumer in these developing nations. NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is between US, Canada, and Mexico, also has many IP provisions. So these things are everywhere. Uh, these agreements are sold as free trade agreements, but under the cover of free trade, the US is using them to export its IP law. Okay, now in the US and in other countries, uh, there are some industries that are fairly safe from, uh, they're fairly free of intellectual property, like the fashion industry. The way a shirt is designed, the way a, a, a dress is designed, is not covered by intellectual property, which is why there's a successful knockoff industry. You know, a year or two later, you'll see the same, a similar design in the cheaper stores, and then the fashion industry is thriving and doing fine without IP. But of course, there's agitation to enact these kind of laws. There is a treaty called the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, called ACTA, which is in negotiation right now. Uh, there's one called COICA. Combating Online Infringement and Counterfeits Act, and that uh, sort of lost favor, and now there's one called Son of Quaker, which has been reintroduced. These guys never go away. Now, many of you might have heard about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, which the United States was negotiating with several Pacific Rim countries, uh, not, in, not including China. And of course, when Trump got into office, and, and by the way, the whole thing was dominated by intellectual property. It would have been horrible. No, Donald Trump came into office and he killed it, thank God, but of course he did so for the wrong reasons. He killed it because he's against free trade and he's for intellectual property. The right reason to kill TPP would be because you're for free trade, but you're against intellectual property. So he had it exactly backwards. Uh, meanwhile, a companion treaty called the TTIP, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is being negotiated right now between the EU and the US, is very similar to the TPP. Uh, so that's a negotiation now. I don't know how it's going to go now that the TPP was thankfully killed. Uh, this, is a little, this is a little chart showing the Mickey Mouse, the Mickey Mouse curve because in the red on the lower left, this, the, the, the copyright term when the U.S. was founded was 14 years, and you could, you could reapply one more time for another 14 years. So it was up to 28 years, and you can see that every time every, – every few decades – the Congress passes a law expanding the term to its current point to where it's now life of the author plus 70 years. Uh, and that little dashed line shows where Mickey Mouse would have – his copyright would have expired. So you know, Disney's done a good job of protecting their interests in Congress. Um, I'm going to close in a second. So I, I'm, I just have a few examples of some outrages uh, or some, uh, some clear examples of how the U.S. has exported its IP law to other countries. Uh, I, I mentioned already that we, we use these treaties we negotiate and our, our dominance in the world economy to pressure other countries to adopt U.S.-style laws. We aim them at everyone – China, Russia, India, Canada, Europe, Latin America, everywhere. No one's safe. Um, so for example, I mentioned earlier the Berne Convention requires countries to have life of the author plus 50 years for copyright. The U.S. has 70. So what we've done is – so for example, Canada wanted to get into the TPP negotiations, so America insisted that they extend their copyright by 20 years in order to get into the TPP, which they did, only for sound recordings, but still they did it. Mexico 
agreed to the ACTA, which made them extend their copyright in order to get into the TPP too. So it's just an example. Uh, and sadly, even as I mentioned earlier, the quote from William Sugart, the Independent Institute economist in favor of IP, the Fraser Institute, which is a free market think tank in Canada, of course, is urging, urging Canada to strengthen their IP law. I mean, after all, we're in favor of property, so we have to be in favor of intellectual property, right? Uh, Russia was the biggest country not in the WTO for a long time, and America blocked their application for membership in the WTO for almost 20 years uh, because they, they weren't adopting American-style intellectual property law. We had something ominously called the, uh, the non-conforming countries designation. We, it's called the Special 301 List. And if you get put on that list, if the American government designates your country as being non-conforming, then they will use pressure and sanctions and, and other uh, coercive tactics to punish these countries for not adopting U.S.-style IP law. Okay? Uh, many Latin American countries have bowed to pressure. Colombia uh, put through some ex extensions to copyright law before a visit from Obama to please him. Panama has extended their copyright law. Uh, uh, under duress from U.S. Uh, the, uh, the United States brought Brazil to the WTO in a, in a suit on the behest of Merck, the pharmaceutical giant in the U.S. Uh, finally, they had to drop it. Um, and I, I hear Heroico, only, only Brazilian I know. Uh, Brazil broke a patent on an HIV drug because it was costing lives. So Brazil did something good there. Uh, Spain was under pressure to extend its copyright law, etc. And uh, you know, just one more example, uh, the WikiLeaks have released a lot of this information, WikiLeaks uh, cables. Uh, the U.S. was twisting the arms of Bosnia to get them to pay licenses to Microsoft. So this is just an example of how these big U.S. companies, under our system of crony capitalism, were in bed with the state to export laws that harm everyone harms innovation, harms freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, distorts the culture, all for the benefit of certain special interests in the West. So I'll conclude there, but thank you very much. Uh, so, I think what happened. Oh. <laughs> I think cause and effect are reversed in this case. Uh, the Industrial Revolution happened for other factors, and because technology started becoming more and more important, certain special interest groups relied upon uh, 
the patent law to, to stop competition. So there is no evidence, not even empirical evidence, that patent law stimulates or causes innovation. It really just slows down innovation. In mo almost every case you can think of of an important innovation, the innovation comes about because its time has come, because previous innovations have gotten to the point where the next innovation can happen. In most famous cases, the airplane, the light bulb, radio, the telegraph, all these innovations, there were many inventors in many countries all coming to similar ideas at the same time. And then it became a race to the patent office to see who would get the patent first. So even without the patent, obviously many people would have been working on inventing and solving the same problem anyway. So no, I think patents only slow down and distort the industry. For example, the United States was one of the first with the airplane, but because of the patent, uh, competition was slowed down so much that uh, when World War I started, the United States air airplane industry was way behind in Europe, and we had to catch up. So the actual, like, so the patent the Wright brothers had on, on the airplanes slowed down the American aeronautics industry for maybe 20, 30 years. Well, we need to think as, as like libertarians sometimes. We need to think in terms of property rights and justice and principle. The purpose of law is not to encourage innovation. The purpose of law is not to make sure there's enough innovation. There will always be some level of artistic creation and innovation in any society. The idea that we don't have enough is basically a market failure argument, right? So the state says, without the state, there will only be this much innovation. We think there should be this much innovation. So we're going to pass a law to get us closer to this optimum ideal. This is, of course, nonsense as a general, general theoretical matter. And as a matter of fact, the way the patent system works now, it benefits large companies, not small companies. Large companies can afford the salaries of attorneys to acquire large caches of patents which protects them from competition. So Microsoft and Google and Apple and Samsung, these companies have thousands of patents related, let's say, to smartphones and related technology. And they might sue each other every now and then, but because they each have a large arsenal of patents, they come to a settlement and they one pays the other some royalty. They pass the cost down to the consumer, which is you and me. We pay more for our phones. And they don't have to innovate as much because they have basically a cartel now. Smaller companies cannot afford to fight these big guys, so they're left out in the cold. So patents actually benefit large companies like a lot of government and company collusion does, right? The minimum wage law, all these regulations harm the smaller companies more than the larger companies. The basic answer to the question is the incentive is to make a profit. There is no reason a company can't innovate 
and come up with a good product and then sell it. Now, as Austrians, we should recognize and remember that profit is, in a sense, an unnatural phenomenon, and it's always temporary. Every time you make a profit, it's because you see some opportunity to solve in the free market, and you do it, and you satisfy consumers, but then what's that going to do? Send a signal to other competitor, possible competitors that there's a possible profit opportunity, and then they will come in and compete with you, and your profit margin will get lower and lower because of competition, which is a good thing, and then we have to come up with the next innovation and the next innovation. So the reason for innovation is to come up with a way to make a profit temporarily until competitors catch up with you, and then you move on. This is why we have scientific and technological progress. Yes, so this is usually the argument given in the pharmaceutical or drug, drug patents case. Uh, I, I, I can't answer in too much detail here, but I would refer anyone interested in this to, to read chapter 9 of Michele Boldrin and David Levine's book, Against Intellectual Monopoly. They go into the pharmaceutical case in empirical detail. Uh, first, we have to recognize that, like said, let's say the United States, uh, uh, that we have severe government regulations. The, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has severe regulations on companies that impose enormous costs to develop a new drug. It also requires companies to reveal publicly the ingredients of their drugs during this process. So the process may take five or ten years. By the time they are approved to release a new drug, and they have spent so much money on the process in the first place, and their ideas are made public because the government forces them to, other people could, could easily compete with them because of that, because they've had ten years to get ready, and they can see the ingredients of the drug. So the government harms these pharmaceutical companies with one system, the FDA. And then these companies say it's hard to compete now because we, we don't have a first, a first to the market advantage anymore. So we need you to protect us. So the government says, okay, we'll give you a patent. So the you know, if you want to get rid of the so-called necessity of patents, get rid of the FDA system too. That would reduce the costs on companies. If the government wasn't around to impose taxes and regulations on companies, they would be, what, two, three, five, eight times richer? They would have a lot of money left over to, to innovate. Um, many of you have probably seen the phenomenon, you go to a drugstore, and you can buy, I don't know, Tylenol, which is a type of pain, pain reliever. It's maybe $5 for a bottle. Right next to it is there's the generic brand of acetaminophen for $2 yet they both still sell. Some people will pay twice as much for the brand name because they trust the reputation or it's just easier or whatever. It is possible to make a profit because you have a reputation and because you're first to market.